Live from Chatterbox Sports Studios, it's Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. Well, I'd be remiss sitting in this chair if I didn't say good morning, good morning, good Thursday morning. Welcome to Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. But instead, you're getting the ham and eggers along with Reed Mouse. It is Off the Bench presented by United Dairy Farmers. We hope you spend your late morning with us. We have a great show. The man who knows the most about the Reds in this city, Nick Kirby, will be with us in the first hour to talk about the move they made last night. And around the turn of the show, Rick Broering, publisher of the Musketeer Report and NKU's radio analyst, will join us to talk about the Muskies' chances of winning the Big East and other teams here in the Queen City. The final half hour of the show normally runs from 10 to 12. Around the final half hour, we will segue into Not Too Picky with Paul Fritchner as we welcome fan favorite Schmaltzy, Mike Schmaltz, as we get into the picks, Super Bowl, Waste Management Open, all the games that we have this weekend. So let's run down the world of sports. No local teams were in action last night, but eight ranked teams played. In the SEC, both Alabama and Tennessee took the hardwood. Bama took apart the Florida Gators, winning 97-69. to They sit atop the SEC with an 11-0 record in conference play. In those 11 games, they've won 10 by double digits. For the gamblers out there on Betfred Sportsbook, you can get them to win it all at plus 1,000. You might want to take a flyer on that. Tennessee fell to their rival Vanderbilt to fall to 8-3 in league play. All for not, Alabama pretty much has the SEC wrapped up. In the American Conference, Houston beat the brakes off of Tulsa in the Big East, Providence, and Creighton took care of business, winning by double digits. And in the gauntlet that is the Big 12, 11th-ranked Iowa State lost in Morgantown. And I'll tell you what, guys, Huggy Bears Mountaineers are trending at the right time. Baylor beat Oklahoma. There are 10 teams in the Big 12, seven of them are within two games of the league title, according to Bracket Matrix. Six Big 12 teams are currently listed to get a four seat or better. Thank you to Rick Broering, who's going to be later on the show for discovering that. Just a reminder, West Miller's Bearcats join that conference next year. In the NBA, there was another blockbuster trade. Before today's deadline, Kevin Durant was traded to the Phoenix Suns, where he will join Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton. The Suns currently sit fifth in the West. The packet for Durant includes Mikel Bridges, Jay Crowder, Cam Johnson, and four Mark that four unprotected first-round picks. T.J. Warren will be headed to Phoenix with Durant. This all pretty much closes the books on the super team that was the Brooklyn Nets with James Harden, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant. During their years there in Brooklyn, they played just 16 games together. In Los Angeles, the Lakers got point guard D'Angelo Russell from the Timberwolves. Obviously, he used to play for the Lakers. It was a three-team, seven-player deal. The Lakers also acquired Malik Beasley and Jared Vanderbilt. Russell Westbrook was shipped to Utah along with Juan Toscano-Anderson, Damian Jones, and a first-round pick. The Timberwolves got Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Mike Conley. And here in the Queen City, in the MLB, the Reds made the move to get Will Benson from the Cleveland Guardians. They traded Justin Boyd and a player to be named later. Benson is a physically imposing guy, 6'5", 230-pound left-handed hitter. He smashed in AAA last year before being called up to the league. He struggled in the MLB, but the Reds will have another option for that outfield. Another platoon. We'll talk to Nick Kirby about that in a bit. He comes on at 1030. Guys, Paul and Casey, you ready to have our flu game or maybe not our flu game? We're missing Trace and, and Tom. I'll tell our viewers what I told my wife back in high school when I asked her to be, go to prom. I may not be your first option or your second option, but if you stick around, we'll have some fun.
Casey Paul, how are you guys doing today? Doing great, Reed. Doing great. Doing fantastic. Fantastic. I uh, I I like your uh, all your notes in here about the NBA. Get the NBA covered. Oh, we do. Like we do it. a great. If you want fantastic NBA coverage, it comes right here. I'll, I'll say this about the NBA. Obviously, not having a team here in Cincinnati, you never follow it closely. I mean, obviously, when it gets to the finals, you watch a game here and there, and you, you know all the big names, but you don't follow it closely. As a baseball fan, the one thing that we had over the NBA and the NFL for years was that our offseason was better and that our trade deadline was the most exciting in sports. And that just purely isn't the case anymore. Blockbuster trade after blockbuster trade in the NBA this week and pretty much every offseason, every trade deadline. Has the NBA trade deadline surpassed the MLB in your guys' minds? Yeah, I, I think so. When you look at the MLB, the, the problem with the MLB, when you look at all these other leagues, like the NBA, that have figured out the offseason or have figured out the off-the-field or off-the-court drama, however you want to say it, the reason that the NBA has figured all this out is because it's condensed. When you're in free agency, you know how much a player is going to make. They get a max contract, super max contract, whatever it is. These players know how much they're going to get paid in free agency because of the cap so that it all happens at one time, and all they have to really decide is what team they're going to play for. It's the same with the trade deadline in a sense where these guys ask for a trade, boom, they're shipped off. They get a trade. Look at Kyrie. He asked for a trade within 48 hours, boom, he's gone. You don't think Kevin Durant's going to stick around without Kyrie, without you know Harden, all these guys. He's not going to stick around in Brooklyn. They're going to get rid of him. What do they do? They get rid of him. They send him to Phoenix. The NBA rules – and the contracts and everything. There's just so much, like the pick swaps and everything. It's just so yeah. hard to follow all these intricate details. And, well, who's got a pick swap and what year in 2027 with this pick and the first? Yeah, man, there's a lot that goes on to it. But, yeah, you're right. I think the NBA has very much left the MLB in the dust with all of their off the off the playing surface drama. Yeah. The one player that I – it really started back in in my lifetime with the Celtics when they made that super team. But then LeBron opens up the fact that in basketball, more so than football and baseball, the players hold the weight. Superstars run the show. In, in football, at the end of the day, except for, for the quarterbacks, the front of the jersey matters more than the back of the jersey. In baseball, same thing. That Yankees logo is more important than any name on the back of that jersey. But in basketball, superstars, they hold all the weight. They hold all the cards. And the GMs, the owners of these teams are basically at the whims of these players going, I don't want to play here anymore. I want to go somewhere else. At what, t at what point, and I asked Tom this the other day, we talked about it and got into it a little bit, but then we got off on some other stuff. At what point do the superstars in the NBA get the leverage? Or the Sorry. What point do the teams and the owners get the leverage back over the superstars? Because right now, like you said, if you're a superstar in the NBA and you ask for a trade, you're gone. You're gone, which is fine in the sense that they want the players to be happy. You don't want the players being held hostage on a team they don't want to play for. But at the same time, you sign a contract and you're supposed to play for a team and all of a sudden you just sit out and you don't play. I think that's where people get tired of the NBA. If you're going to make that argument, people there are reasons for that. And it gets frustrating to be a fan of a team where you're constantly having players say ah get me out of here trade me to this spot trade me to that spot I thought the, the Nets didn't get a bad return here uh, yeah four, four first round picks yeah. three other players and 
The Suns actually lost three of their better defenders in that trade. But the thing is, is you want to talk about here in the MLB where all these small markets, they don't, they don't have a shot. Well, when the players hold all the cards in the NBA, in what world are a conglomeration of superstars gonna, gonna head to Charlotte? Are they gonna, are they gonna go to Orlando? Are they gonna go to these Sacramento teams that, you know, they're not big places. I mean, you can say, yeah, a lot of people went to Cleveland. What's Cleveland got to offer? Well, Cleveland had LeBron's ties. So unless you get a generational talent, like say John Morant gets, you know, just very tied into Memphis. That's the only way Memphis ever has a chance to compete for a championship because they're not going to get these super teams that want to go to Memphis. Yep. No. Yeah, and I, the one thing I would say about, to kind of add on to this conversation a little bit, the the power with the fans too, it's, it's, it's definitely not they're rooting for a team anymore. It's that they're rooting for players. I mean, I, just a case study in my own family, one of my uh, future brother-in-laws, is the biggest KD fan in the world. And I guarantee mm-hmm. you, he's got a Thunder jersey, he's got a Nets jersey, he's going to get a Suns jersey, he's got a Golden State Warriors jersey. He just follows KD wherever he goes and roots for him because he can't, you know, that, that's where the NBA has shifted to is what players do you like? It's not about the teams anymore necessarily. It's just about what guy you want to succeed. And that's, it's very weird. It's a weird dichotomy that, like, it, it is the exact parallel. It's, like, different compared to the NFL or the MLB where we do root for teams. But I think part of that, too, is a lot due to this reason where these players move around so much. How often do you see these superstars sticking around at the same team? Luka's been with the Mavs, but he's still relatively young. LeBron's been on three different teams. Uh, KD's been all over the planet. These big superstars, Chris Paul, all these guys, there's no loyalty. And I'm not arguing that there should be yeah. loyalty necessarily. I don't, I don't care where you play. I don't care. If you, if you go and make more money somewhere else, if you feel like you have the opportunity to win a championship somewhere else, all right, so be it. See ya. Yeah, whatever. It's the players that are the ones that are going out there and producing it need to, to you know, be happy in their situation. But – I think there is a little bit of that. Now, Giannis has been with the Bucks, but again, still relatively young. He's, he's not as young as you kind of think he might be, but uh, he's, he's still relatively young. He's just been around in the league for a while. It's not till the last few years that he's really blown up to the proportion that he is now. But, yeah, I, uh, the, the NBA is a superstar-driven league. There's no doubt about it. So in the first 11 minutes, Casey used the word dichotomy. He's talking about case studies. So yesterday when you're you really got, drawing it out of him, right? I mean, did, did you open up a thesaurus when you got yeah. home yesterday? Just, just open no. up that I'm book. glad you said no. it. Cause I was going to say the same thing. No, I just, it, I've thought about it a lot. Honestly, this is a conversation that I've had with my brother-in-law, future brother-in-law. And it's just uh, very strange to me. I can't like, I could have ne- never imagine. I mean, like I loved, AJ Green or yeah. Andy Dalton, but I could never imagine rooting for another team other than the Bengals. It just, it, it, I couldn't, it, I can't do that for you, some reason. You do kind of this sideways thing, right? Like where you hope AJ Green gets 15 touchdowns in, in Arizona, but if he ever plays the, if, if, if ever the Cardinals' interests go against the Bengals' interest, 
you're rooting against the Cardinals. Let me ask you this. Joe Burrow, hope this never happens, leaves the Bengals. Oh, boy. Goes and plays for someone else. In the AFC, are you rooting for Joe Burrow? Oh, man. I mean, it just depends on how he left. I mean, if it was because the Bengals did something outrageous, um, then then I might have a problem with that. It's, But if it was like Carson Palmer, right? Like, he... he there was some bad blood there. Yeah, he went out on a bad. That was a bad breakup. Like that, to me, yeah, never, never rooted for for Carson. Never, never did. Look at the Patriots fans with Tom Brady. They all loved him. Yeah, they they, they basically shit. became Bucks fans. They did. They did. They did. They there's a there's an old joke about up in New England that they would, you know, big Catholic area. They'd always start mass thanking thanking God, thanking Jesus, and thanking Tom Brady. Uh, so, Paul, so we asked Casey about Joe Burrow. What about as a college basketball fan and, and someone who's very close to the Muskies? Yeah. When these coaches leave, yeah. do you root for them? Like when Chris Mack goes to Louisville, are you actively rooting for Chris Mack to, to get it right in Louisville? Yeah, I, I, I liked Chris Mack. And, and you can look back at some of the older situations with, uh, you know, the way Thad left to go to Ohio State. People, Travis. People. Well, you're in for Travis out there in Oxford. Yeah, I loved. I mean, Travis was a nice guy. The situation did not work out at uh, at Xavier for Travis. There were there were issues that clearly, when you go from being the 250, think about this, and we'll get into this more with Rick. But Xavier was the 250th ranked three point shooting team in the country last year. 250th. They hadn't been. Hadn't been higher than 215th, I think, in the last four years. They are number one this year. Right now, right this minute, Xavier is the best three-point shooting team in the entire country. Coaching's got a lot to do with that. So, to get back to your point, uh, people were not happy with the way Sean left to go to Arizona, um, especially with some comments that he made to a recruit after he got there about the whole Buick and the Lexus thing. They clearly got over it. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't ever hold it unless it's like really ugly and spiteful, but like, what do you expect? The guy's got a job to do with recruiting. He's going right. to recruit against you. Like I, I would, I don't ever hold it against somebody unless it's, it's ugly and spiteful. And then he makes you look bad in the process or whatever. But like, I'm, I'm not old enough to remember the dynamic of, Thad leaving. I remember him leaving, but not really all of the background. That was that was a little bit before me when I started really tuning in closely to, to remember the whole dynamic of him leaving for Ohio State. All I remember is that he basically promised he was going to stay at Xavier and then yep. within 12 hours was gone to Ohio State. So I know a lot of Xavier fans still very much hate Thad Mata and will boo him severely in three weeks when he comes to the Centos Center as the coach of Butler. Um, but you know, like Travis Steele, guy, it wasn't his fault that he left. I mean, well, hold on, let me let me let me rephrase that. Right, it was his fault. He did not choose to leave Xavier on right. his own volition. And that he's not much of a threat to Xavier either. So yeah. it's just like, eh. yeah, it's just, it just it is what it is. So no, I I don't I don't think so. I don't hold it against him. Chris, I loved Chris. I rooted for him. I mean, Chris, you know, the, the cupboard was bare when he left. Somebody was going to have to rebuild. That ended up being Travis, and he didn't do it very well. But, no, I didn't. And I, honestly, Chris got a raw deal at Louisville, too. Chris yeah. got a real raw deal. He'll get another job. You look at you look at what Chris Mack did at 
Louisville and what Chris Holtman is doing right now at Ohio State, there are a lot of parallels to ex- valid excuses that you can have for the reason, very valid excuses that you can have, injuries, COVID, a lot of other things that you can directly point to at Ohio State that have gone wrong with that basketball program under Chris Holtman that are not under his control. Guys like Zed Key getting hurt this year, key pieces that haven't been able to to, to, to be available. Chris Mack, they were tracking to be like a two seed in the 2020 NCAA tournament, if I remember correctly. And then I think, I think, I could be wrong. They, they might not have had that good of a year. I'd have to go back and check. But they were having a very good year in 2020 when the, when the tournament got canceled. And now all of a sudden, yeah, they were 24-7 and seven that year. They lost a few down the stretch, so they probably weren't going to be a two seed. But they were going to be a high seed. They were the eighth, ninth ranked team on Ken Palm. They were having a very good year. And the tournament gets canceled. Then all of a sudden they tank in 2021, 13-7, you know, bow out of the ACC tournament early, don't make the tournament. And then 2022 he gets out of Dodge after a bad year, you know, and, and they go 6-14 and 14 in, the, in the ACC. They just can't – I can't root against that. Would, would you rather Trav, – so Travis Steele did this. Would you rather your, your head basketball coach at Xavier make the tournament or give you $1,000 worth of free drinks – at Dana Gardens. Ooh, that's a good question. That's a tough one. That's a thousand dollars worth of drinks. You're taking the drinks. I already know. <laughs> Casey, so the chat is going on and on about Carson Palmer. Yep. And I've got to ask the question: Is there ever been an athlete that was very successful here? In Cincinnati, whether it be for the Reds, whether it be for the Bengals, whether it be for one of the college teams that we, we support here. Has there ever been an athlete like Carson Palmer that has been just vilified to the extent that he has? And rightfully so, because he is vindictive against the Bengals ever since he left. Um, off the top of my head, I cannot think of anyone. I, th- I can think of players that left Cincinnati and were good, but never, never became a villain. Because he's but, constantly yeah. going going at odds with the Bengals. I mean, when Joe Burrow's getting drafted, he's going on saying, you don't want to go to the Bengals. You don't want to go to the Bengals. And then he doubles down after the Bengals make the Super Bowl, constantly just throwing shade towards the city of Cincinnati. And listen, I loved Carson Palmer. I'll never forget this. You remember back in like 2005 or early 2000s for, for kids around my age? Did your schools do a magazine sale? Because my school did as a fundraiser. And I got Sports Illustrated for Kids. And I remember getting this Sports Illustrated for Kids magazine that ranked all the quarterbacks in the NFL, put them in tiers. And at the top tier, there were three quarterbacks. Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, and the Cincinnati Bengals' Carson Palmer. And I'll never forget opening up that magazine and getting so excited for Carson Palmer. And then he leaves the way that he does and a decade later is still throwing shade at this city. Yeah, I mean, it's just so strange to me because we gave him top dollar. Um, he complains that we're not being able to spend enough money. We're too cheap. Um, I don't know. I, I I was too young to fully know exactly what the contract situations and all that were like. Um, their spending habits. I know people have said that they were cheap, but it's been proven time and time again that they give top dollar to their superstars. Right. And... <sighs> You know, the way that he left, it seemed to me like he was just upset that, like, the Bengals weren't fully in. 
And I think now that that narrative has been put to bed. They're they're fully in. They're fully invested. They're willing to do whatever it takes to win. I just think they're fully invested in their way of winning. And their way of winning is spending in free agency and drafting well. They're not going to trade. They're not going to do things outside of what they normally do. So I think that's what the issue is with Palmer. But I don't feel like uh, – for some reason, he just won't get over it. He can't and refuses to see the good – that progress that the Bengals have made, that's really a shame because I think, you know, if he doesn't go out the way that he does um, and he just quietly leaves or, you know, he just – that we don't view him as a villain. I don't feel like we vindicate um, – we don't vindicate his actions. More, more uh, definitions there. Do you guys remember? Yeah, I like I like more definitions. More definitions. We'll get you. We're, we're opening up the thesaurus. Hollister. He's on his A game today. Wordsmith. Do you remember last year when, or I don't know quite how long ago it was. Maybe could have been a year and a half ago when USC was trying to find their head coach, and Carson Palmer, spokesperson for the University of Southern California Trojans, goes on Dan Patrick's show, and outwardly says that USC is close, he said close, to getting Mike Tomlin as their head coach. Said that on Dan Patrick's show. And then Mike Tomlin took the podium like an hour later. It was just like, why would I, what, what are you talking about? Like, I, like basically said that he hadn't even heard anything. Why in the world would he even entertain leaving a professional job for USC? Just trying to speak it into existence, Reed. It was I, – because I was watching Dan Patrick's show live when that happened, and you're like, oh, the Steelers losing their head coach? Let's go. And then literally an hour later, Mike Tomlin, like – Tomlin's a very animated guy in these press conferences. He's like, yeah, what, why, would I, why would I leave the NFL? Why would I want to go recruit kids when I can just do this thing in the NFL? I've never had a losing season. Mike Tomlin, you know how he is. Tomlin is an underrated, quotable coach. He's great. He's a very underrated – Listen to the press conference and go, wait, wait, wait. What did he just say? Yeah. What, what was that? At least with Cincinnati fans, we don't – of course, we don't know what he says half the time because we're Cincinnati fans. We hate the Steelers. But I agree with that. I think he, he has a lot of very quotable moments in his, in his tenure in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and some of it you just don't really know what he's saying. Some of it is just – it's out there. It's it's very it's very uh, obscure, but it just comes across as wow, oh, that was Mike Tomlin. The aviator sunglasses, always a good look on the sideline. To Tomlin, I hate him because he's a Steelers coach, but low key kind of cool. I love Tomlin. Low key kind of yeah, cool. I've always loved Tomlin. I love him. Now we can say he's kind of cool because we kind of own him right now. We're the better team. You know, when, when you're little brother for the, for the Steelers, you you, you just I'm going to use the word vindicating again. Vin yeah. Vindictive towards the Steelers. And now you're just like, yeah, he's kind of cool. It's kind of it's, – it's funny how we were in Bengals fandom. We were kind of cool with the Chiefs for a while, cool with Patrick Holmes because we were 3-0 and against them. All of a sudden we lose. They're our biggest rival. They are, t they are number one on the most wanted list here in the Queen City. It's funny how fandoms are so fickle like that. Yeah. We, uh, we uh, strive to be the best, and when anyone tries to get in our way, they're public enemy number one. Uh, I think uh, one of our 
every week guest, it seems like, Zim, he lived yeah. by that mantra every single day of his life. Like, whatever the, the Sunday opponent is, that is public enemy number one. He's going to find every way to tear them down. And that's what I like to strive to be sometimes. But not to get off totally off topic, but just something Go randomly ahead. off the top of my head. We got a little time. That's how I feel about every single waking moment right now about the Ravens. Hate the Ravens. Hate the Ravens. And I know people think, you know, they, they, they hate the Steelers like that. My, my burning passion is to hate the Ravens. And I know, it's very personal, but I don't know, man. I mean, that right now I can't – I am, like, just happy as all can be because of the turmoil that's going on over there. With the Lamar situation, they don't know what they're gonna do. See, I'm eating it up. See, my personal and you—you've had an experience with a Ravens fan, which has led to this hate. We're not gonna go into that, but you've had a personal experience with Ravens yeah. fans that yeah. has led to that. My personal Bengal fandom has been just so pointed at the Steelers that I hope they never win another football game for the rest of time because they have caused me so much pain. And then vice versa, living in Northern Ohio like I did for five years, Cleveland Browns fans are the worst. So they're one and two. The Ravens were just whatever, whatever. Just whatever. And you know what? I've had a Now I've had a bad story with Chiefs fans that I they're number two on my list after the Ravens, which is crazy to me. I never thought that would happen. But man, I they they are really terrible after after games. Just bad. I used to hate the Steelers so much that I mean I, I still don't like them, but I used to hate them so much that I had it in my phone to where I auto corrected. I set it so that the auto correct whenever I typed in Steelers, it would type in a capital S and then the rest of it was asterisk because I didn't even want to read it on my phone. So when I texted somebody about the Steelers, it would be S with a bunch of asterisks, like a bad word. So similar to how Michigan fans don't use the letter, or oh, my bad, Ohio State fans don't use the letter M that entire week. Paul was just not using Teelers for his entire existence. Yeah. <laughs> then I got over that. That's mature of you. Then I grew up. But what? Ohio State fans haven't. Ooh, a little Ooh, spicy. A little spicy. Man, we get Tom off the show, and, and Paul's just throwing shade at Ohio <laughs> State fans. It's funny how that works. And listen, I know we have a lot of Ohio State fans here in the chat. You're not going to get a whole lot of love from, from this panel today. So we got, we got Kirby coming in here very soon, and we're going to talk about the Reds. We mentioned that they got Will Benson, and are we ready to bring in Curbs? Uh, I think we, we are. are. Yeah, let's are. bring him on. Let's go, Kirby. Let's get him in here. Let's get him in. Kirby, how's it going, man? What's up, fellas? I, I can't believe you had me on. Is the title of the show is MLB Dying and you bring me on? Well, <laughs> you are you're the what are those devices? AED? Is that is that what it is? Where yeah. you shock, you shock the heart, you get that blood pumping again. You are the lifebeat of the MLB here in this city. Kirby, how you doing, brother? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so Kirby, we, we, we might have to – he's got to be a dad today. So he said that there might be some kids interrupting the show, which is fine. Dad duties come first. But most importantly, the Reds made a move last night, and you were very excited. Getting Will Benson from the Cleveland Guardians, another potential spot 
to platoon in that outfield. What do you like about this move? Well, I think he fits really well at Great American Ballpark. Big power bat, mm -hmm. uh, high on base guy. Uh, definitely some flaws with his game. Um, uh, not going to hit for a high average. Uh, but but for the, what the Reds gave up for him, uh, a player that uh, was a second-round pick that was a long way away from uh, uh, you know playing in the MLB, I think it really fits where the Reds are at. Uh, and I think really gives the Reds um, a pretty decent outfield after going into the offseason. It looked like there was no outfielders. Now they got Will Myers. Uh, now they got Benson. Uh, and, and I think they could really kind of piece together an outfield that is is at least competitive. So, yeah, if, you know, from the outside looking in, you look at this Reds team, there's a lot to be excited about the rotation. There's a lot to be excited about the infield. The outfield just kind of seemed like a hodgepodge. You know, you get Will Myers as a veteran bat, but the ceiling seemed to be the lowest for that outfield. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I also, I really like Jake Fraley. Uh, I think Jake Fraley is uh, a, a really, has really proven that he can hit right-handed pitching uh, at a at a really good level. Um, he, he's done that for his entire career in MLB, and he also had really, really good splits in the minors his last several years. So, I mean, I think I think you could really, on opening day, have three outfitters, especially if you're facing a right-handed pitcher, uh, that you feel really good about. I think you put out a tweet yesterday about Will Will Benson's Triple uh, A last year. Absolutely mashed at Triple A last year. I think his OPS plus was like 150, somewhere around that range. Correct me if I'm wrong. 158. So for those who don't know, OPS plus it's it's kind of a more advanced metric. It in short takes the the league average of OPS and puts in some other factors. Your on base plus slugging puts in some other factors like the ballpark you play in, and then gives you a nice round number. A hundred is the league average. So you said one fifty eight, meaning he is fifty eight percent better amongst all AAA batters. Obviously struggled at the MLB level, but this ceiling—he's a big physical guy, six foot five, two hundred thirty pounds, left-handed hitter here at Great American Ballpark. This is a potential, at least on the outlook, for another potential thirty home run guy for the Reds. Is that his ceiling? Yeah, I mean, I would say I would say so. I, I don't, I don't know if he'll be able to play regularly against left-handed pitching. So you know that that might skew like his overall home run total. But if it was like a 162 game pace, yeah, maybe I, I would say 30 is probably uh, realistic. Thing I also like about him is he can play all three outfield positions. Yeah, um, he did play center field last year for the Guardians. I think he had six starts. Um, he he got called up and played very sporadically. They were in a, a playoff chase. Um, he was just kind of like an extra dude on their roster. So I, I don't want to make excuses for how you know bad his numbers looked last year, but it wasn't like he got called up and, hey, he was thrown in the lineup every day. He was really given every chance to succeed. He was just a filling guy. Another thing I really like about him is uh, his sprint speed uh, that, that was calculated would be the fastest on the Reds right now. Wow. If you're David Bell, how, how do you think he's going to handle this platoon in the outfield? You got Fraley, Myers, Benson, uh, some other guys. I think Fairchild and Solak are those the other two guys that that could possibly platoon out there. How would you think this is platoon's going to work? Well, it's going to be a mix and match. I, I know like platoon's like a dirty word for a lot of fans, but I mean sure. there's a lot of really good teams that have used platoons. I, I know that the uh, the 2020 and 2021 World Champions both had Jock Peterson, but mm -hmm. in a platoon role. So. Yeah. I, 
I think, you know, platoons can be successful, especially if you're in a case like the Reds, um, where you're not going to have, you don't have the same budget as some of these other teams. You've got to find this value. I think Solak is a really uh, interesting player, has some really good numbers against left-handed pitching. Um, the, the question becomes, you know, do you have enough roster spots to platoon like three outfield positions? That's where I think it becomes a little more more tough. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think David Bell will probably platoon a lot. Will Myers will also probably play maybe some first base. There's also uh, Joey Votto might also not be ready for opening day, and Will Myers might be playing first base every day too. So that could also kind of get uh, factored into this as well. Where do you sit in the camp for Tyler Stevenson moving away from the catcher role? You keep him a catcher as long as you possibly can. Um, I I've said this many times before. Uh, Tyler Stevenson is an elite hitting catcher. He's an average slightly above average hitting first baseman. So you ride him out of catcher as long as he can. Now, if the the doctors are telling you, like, for his well-being, he needs to be moved off of catcher, mm -hmm. then it's a totally different story. But I have not heard anything to that yet. So, I mean, when you're the Reds, you're trying to find as much value as you can out of each player at their, their best position. You need Tyler Stevenson value at catcher as long as you possibly can. Yeah, that's a good point. He's an elite hitting catcher. He's a good to above average hitting first baseman. You look at, if you stack up the catcher's best numbers, best catchers in the league, JT Real Muto, Will Smith, Sean Murphy, you stack them up against their first baseman on their team, they're probably not even a better hitter than their own first baseman. So that's a, a, a very good point. Kirby, let's uh, let's take this relationship to the next level. Let's I think we've got a good good little ongoing thing here. Finish this sentence for me. Ellie De La Cruz is the best Reds prospect since. Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, probably since Jay Bruce w would be. I was be, thinking Bruce. If you're talking prospect, I think he's got a higher ceiling than Bruce just because he can play shortstop. I mean, you know, Jay Bruce was a right fielder, so you can only have so much value playing right field. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he may be the, the best, like, overall talent since maybe like a Larkin or Davis, you know, possibly. Right. Um, but just in, in terms of like prospect rankings, I think Bruce is the easy answer. So fun fact about Ellie De La Cruz, we were out in Kansas City, obviously going to the AFC Championship game, and they heard that we were from Cincinnati. And I swear to God, someone stopped us and said, all right, football aside, are you guys excited for this Ellie De La Cruz? So people out in Kansas City know about Ellie De La Cruz. That's how big of a prospect he is. You know, if you look at this team, and I think the, you know, what's the the over-under on win, 66, there's not a whole lot that people are looking to happen this year. You're just kind of building a foundation. But that being said, who are the who's the biggest wild card in this starting lineup, in this rotation, that if they have an outburst or a great season, that this Reds team can compete every day, day in and day out? Uh, if you're talking like players on the opening day roster, probably maybe like Spencer Steer. Um, yeah. If he, if he's able to, you know, be like a, uh, maybe a four win player. If you're looking at wins above replacement, mm -hmm. I think, I think that, um, if you're talking maybe players that are on the cusp of making the big leagues, I would say maybe Christian Encarnacion Strand. Um, he's a guy that I think will debut, uh, this year for the Reds. Uh, his, offensive numbers just pure hitting 
were about the same as Ellie De La Cruz. Uh, but he, he's probably going to end up being a first baseman. Uh, so he doesn't, you know, climb up as high on the prospect rankings. Mm -hmm. uh, but he has a chance to be a really, really special hitter for the Reds. Uh, so he's another guy that he's one of the guys I'm most excited about when he does get called up. Where are you at on Jose Barrero? He was a name that came up a couple years ago as this exciting shortstop, and he, he popped up, had a good week, but really has struggled at the plate. I imagine he's going to be the starting shortstop to begin this year before Ellie De La Cruz comes up. I imagine they're going to do what the, what the Cubs did with Chris Bryant and bring up Deli Cruz at May or, or late April. Is Jose Barrera going to be the starting shortstop, and, and are you out on him? I wouldn't say I'm out on him. I mean, he was like a legit top 25 prospect in baseball like a year and a half ago. So mm -hmm. I think if you give up on a guy that quick, it's kind of silly. Uh, I haven't seen also any like real signs to be super optimistic about what he can do. Uh, I think he's going to get every chance to be the opening day starting shortstop. But they also got Kevin Newman as um, an insurance plan in case he goes to spring and looks as bad as he looked uh, at the plate the last couple months of the season. Um so, I mean, but really, I mean, for him, it's now or never. I mean, right. if you want a starting job, you're going to have to take it because it's not just Ellie De La Cruz. There's also a whole bunch of other guys behind him uh, that, that are coming uh, that, that, that want starting jobs. So, uh, you know, I hope he, he doesn't end up being a, you know, 4A player or backup shortstop, but that's probably where he's trending unless he just has a, a complete overhaul uh, at the beginning of this season. Kirby, we love we love talking Reds with you. We, we happen to have – Paul's got a question I, for I got you. I got one for you, but this is not baseball-related. This is Nick Kirby-related. Uh, Nick, this is your first time on the show, and I've seen some people uh, write in and ask, just tell the people who you are, what you've done with the Reds. I, I have a feeling this might not be your last time here on the Chatterbox Network. So kind of give the people an intro of who you are and what you've done with the Reds before. Yeah, so uh, I just am a Reds fan that follows this team way more than anyone else. Uh, I started writing for a site called Red Leg Nation back in 2013. Um, I had been writing writing for them since then. Um, I started a podcast a couple years ago um, with, with a couple of my buddies. Make some weird videos, some, some hype videos and stuff like that, and uh, just... Uh, you know, just love the Reds and uh, been following them. I actually live in Cleveland, the Cleveland area. So uh, uh, I follow them from afar, but Twitter and uh, stuff like this kind of helps me stay connected with the team. I think you're, I think you're selling yourself a little short, Kirby. Yeah, Kirby. I think you're selling yourself a little short for the amount of coverage that you have given our beloved Cincinnati Reds over the last five years or more. Well, my tweets are featured on Bleacher Report. I don't know how that happened. Um, anytime I use the word Reds, it gets put on the Bleacher Report feed. I have no idea. I didn't sign up for it. Uh, I should be getting paid for it, I think. But should be getting royalties. Yeah, yeah. yeah big Big Brother Bleacher Report stealing that money from our boy yeah. Curbs. Curbs, you know that. You know it feels like this Reds team feels like Twilight a bit, right? There's there's these two two competing really good young starters. Are just like Team Jacob and Team Edward, are you Team Lodolo or are you Team Hunter Green? Oh, that's tough. Um, I, I'm going to cop out, and then I'll, I'll promise I'll give you a real answer at the end. Okay, so <laughs> I think Hunter Green has the higher ceiling, no question. I think Hunter no Green has a, has a chance to be the best pitcher in baseball. Will he get there? I don't, I don't know. 
I don't think Lodolo has the potential to be the best pitcher in baseball, but I think Nick Lodolo is safer to be a really good all-star level mm-hmm. starter, if that makes sense. Um, I would say Hunter Green just because I, 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 I'm going to go with a higher upside guy, but I, I kind of want to make sure I give that caveat that I think Lodolo is the safer pitch. So I've been on this take for a while there that the Atlanta Braves are absolutely laying a blueprint for some of these traditionally non-bigger market teams. And by that, I mean they're getting young, talented players, and they're locking them up long-term. And they're getting them for six, seven years, taking a risk that, you know, these guys, we might be paying these guys seven years, 70 million, and they might turn out to be nothing. But we're also, they're taking a risk by when their rookie contracts are up, we're not having to pay them $200 million. Would you like to see the Reds lock up guys like Hunter Green, Nick Lodolo, Jonathan India, Tyler Stevenson? Would you like them to take that Braves route? Yeah, 100%. I definitely think that's a much better move for the Reds than going out and spending $300 million on someone like Carlos Correa. I, I think that right. those are, I think the Reds got very fortunate that the Joey Votto contract turned out as well as it did. Um, I, I don't necessarily think they should be looking to do those type of deals over and over and over again. Um, I, I do think they still have to be very strategic uh, with who they sign. I just don't think you can just lock up everyone mm-hmm. um, because then you could also get yourself in a whole bunch of bad contracts. Um, and, and it also, the thing people have to remember is if you start paying these guys more now, then it's going to hurt what you can spend on short-term free agency. So you also have to kind of weigh all those factors in. But I'm totally with you. I, I would much rather the Reds uh, lock up Ellie De La Cruz right now than go out and sign some you know $300 million contract. Yeah, people see the Braves do it with Ozzie Albies, Austin Riley, all these names that are young guys and just locking them up before their rookie contract's over. But there has been some duds. Uh, the Phillies famously signed Scott Kingery before he even yeah. played in the MLB, and that has been a complete flop. I believe they gave him $80 million, and he hasn't turned out to be even a serviceable Major League Baseball player. So that's the risk you take, but then you get Ozzie Albies on a $90, $100 million deal when he should be worth about $200 million. So it is risky. And you're right, the, the blueprint has been laid by major league teams where you get this young group of guys and then you supplement it with these veterans to, to really fill in the gaps of this team. If you had to put a timeline on the Reds to when they're going to be competing again, when is it? I would say, I mean, I think, I think 2024 is realistic. Um, you know, you hope there's not a bunch of setbacks this year and then you kind of have yeah. to push it back another year. That's a possibility. I'm not going to lie and act like it isn't. Uh, but I do think the Reds are going to have quite a bit of money to spend in free agency. Hopefully, like that Bally Sports Ohio dispute is is over by then. I think that also might be holding the back Reds back some. Um, but Joey Votto is off the books. Ken Griffey Jr. is actually off the books. Finally! Uh, Mike Moustakis, who's not even on the team, is off the books. So they are going to have quite a bit of money to spend. Um, and I would expect, as long as there is some positive signs this year, that they will at least... Uh, be spending some money in free agency. It's probably not going to be as much as some people want, uh, but I would be really surprised if they didn't at least uh, make some big splashes. Kirby, I hear the kids. I hear the kids in the background. How many kids you got? I got two. They've been so good all day and then uh, just, you know, decided to uh, be rotten when I try to hop on. It's all right. I'll let you go beat dad. Thank you for coming on. Hopefully we can have you on again before uh, Tom comes back. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Yep, see you, Curbs. See you.
He's the best. Kirby's the best. He gives a he he's very optimistic. He's saying that the timeline for the Reds isn't this year. It's next year. 2024. And you know what? If some of these prospects pan out and you keep seeing a progression from Jonathan India and Tyler Stevenson, Hunter Green, Nick Lodolo, there's no reason that the Reds can't compete next year. What is success for the Reds this year? That is a good question. Is I- it is it Beating the win total, 67 wins? How about 70? 72 and a half wins. I, I am going to – well, I don't know if I'm actually going to take the over. Like, I don't know if I'm literally going to put my money on the over for the Reds just because I hate I hate paying juice on futures where you don't see your money for like six months. Right. You know, you put 50 bucks down on the Reds. Yeah. Okay, you're waiting six months for a $95 payout or whatever. Right. What if I you mean, get it in three because they just go on this crazy Well, mystery. don't they <laughs> – I know some books don't pay out a future until, until the end of the, the season. Yep, over. that's how it most, most of the time it works. Yeah. But some books have started to pay out earlier, um, but we use Betfred, and I don't know what Betfred's policy is. So I'll, I'll give you two ways to gauge red success. The first is that – they are not just completely out. I don't think they're going to make the playoffs, but that they are just not completely out of the running come June. Starting 3-22, and 22, we've said it on this show a billion times in a million ways. That can't happen. But that they are playing games in June where they're not 15 games back of first place. That is number one. Number two for gauging success. You'd love to see the Reds get one all-star that you didn't already think. Like, if Jonathan India, who's been an all-star, is there. If Tyler Stevenson is an all-star, that's great. But you don't want to see the Reds be a one all-star team. You don't want to see just Will Myers go into the all-star game because he's the only guy that you can name on the Reds. If they can have a couple guys have good seasons to where that they are getting honored at the all-star game, this team is primed for success. Ellie De La Cruz has to stay healthy. And he has to be successful in his rookie season. You've seen these young prospects come up and they push them too soon. I used to not be a believer in this when you're younger and and almost naive. When you struggle in baseball, it's mental and it gets in your head. People have this hard time understanding like, why don't you bring up these guys if they are truly the best prospect on this Reds team? Why don't you bring them up? And they'll be, then they say, well, they're not ready. They've got to be mentally strong to where that if they go in the MLB and they do struggle, the, their mind is not just going to completely swallow their career. We've seen this happen before. It's not rare that this happens. These guys have succeeded every step along their baseball career. Little League, high school, um, college, minors. And then they get to the league, the best of the rest, creme de la creme, and they are struggling. That can warp a mentality, and that's where these prospects go wrong. So, yeah, they've just got to be healthy. They've got to keep progressing. Yeah, I I look at the way the Reds are set up to play this year, and I knew that Kirby was watching college basketball last night. There, Wyoming and uh, UNLV were playing. It was like 12.45 Eastern time. I knew he was watching the game, so I texted him. We were going back and forth about it, and uh, we eventually we got on the Reds, and I, I responded back to him. We were talking about the Reds' success, and I said, man, if it was June 1st, if it's June 1st, and we haven't forgotten about the Reds yet. It'll be cool. No doubt. I've said it 
a bunch. There's nothing better in this city as a baseball guy than when you go out just on a random summer day. You're at a bar. You're at a brewery. They have a TV on, wherever you're at. And people are actively looking at the Reds game. That didn't happen the past few years. You start 3-22, and 22, you're forget about it. I mean, they started, what, 2-2, two and two, and then they went 1-20 and 20 over the next 21 games? Forgotten. Forget about it. That can't happen again. My friends who are diehard Reds fans, a few years back, were so happy that the Reds were just playing meaningful games in August. Two seasons left. Two, two months left. They weren't above 500. They were just playing games that kind of mattered. That's all Cincinnati is begging for. They're hungry. They just want to get a team that is competitive. That's all they want. Thank you, Curbs, for, for coming on here. That was fantastic. We hopefully have him on. You know, we, we have this show tomorrow. We have it Monday before Tom and Trace come back. So maybe we'll have Curbs on one more time and really talk about this Reds team in, in even more depth. Um, pitchers and catchers report on Monday. So spring training. It's funny. I believe every year there's a countdown. There's multiple countdowns. They're like, hey, it's 20 days till pitchers and catchers report. And then after that, it's 20 days till opening day. So these countdowns keep keep going on. And I'll tell you what, second series of the season, my Cubbies come to town on a Tuesday. 3-2-1. Mm. Nine beers, nine hot dogs. Do you think we can do it? On a Tuesday? On a Tuesday. I, I really don't think I can. I don't think I could do it. Oh, I thought I thought you meant you weren't gonna like attempt to. You're gonna attempt to though, right? Oh hell yeah, I'm gonna go down. We're all gonna attempt yeah. this. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll try it. But I just don't think I think the pace I just think those hot dogs, they're low key. I think low key the hot dogs sneak up on you. I think that's like oh, no doubt. Like can you do nine can you do a can of beer an inning? Sure, but when you get those when you get those hot dogs just kind of sitting in your stomach, it's ah. going to be a strategy. There's got to be a, a, a efficient way of doing this. Because you can't you can't do the thing where like let's say you you drank the 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 can of beer for the top half of the inning and then you ate the hot dog in the bottom half of the inning. Like what if it go six pitch inning, ground out, fly out, yeah. ground out and then you're you're boom, you're right back to beer and then all of a sudden, I, oh. It seems almost impossible if you have to do it every inning, right? You have to have one hot dog every inning, one beer every inning. If you can load up on the hot dogs, I mean, you sit down, you're hungry, you just put down five hot dogs right off the rip. First two innings, five hot dogs done. Then it seems a little obtainable. Let that belly clear out a little bit, drink some beer. But the challenge is that you have to do one an inning. I did not know that. I thought it was nine and oh, there's no way I could do that. I thought it was just you have to, like, first pitch to last pitch, you have to do nine and nine. You're telling me I have to do one of each an inning? That is that is what makes it harder, yes. Oh, no chance. Yeah, no chance I could do that. No have you, chance. Have you guys ever had a Sky Rosa? No. No, I haven't, but I've heard good things. All right, if it, it wouldn't be absolutely crazy if La Rosa's or these pizza places made a Cincinnati chili pizza, right? I mean, if they put just chili on the pizza you guys wouldn't think that's absolutely insane right i wouldn't i mean they make taco in, pizza they make cheeseburger pizza i mean taco pizza is pretty much a chili pizza it's just not damn chili. right it is it's just not 
chili. It's just taco meat. I mean, it's so it's not. I mean, it, it is though, because it's a meat. The difference is it's a meat sauce and not just meat. Okay. But I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they did it. But I'm not gonna try it because one, I don't like Skyline, and two, oh, I'm not. A, oh, I'm not okay. a big La Rosa fan either. No. Casey, Casey, respect respectively, grow up. A dollar in the jar. I will say this: the best La Rosa's pizza is at the ballpark. That is true. It Something is, about yeah. sitting on those burners for a while. You're not a you're not a La Rosa's person either. Uh, it's grown on me. I actually had it for dinner last night. It's grown on me, but the I'm not a huge La Rosa's pizza guy. I like their other meals. I like the that, pasta yeah. meals. You know what they did? You know what La Rosa's did that's really pissed me off in the last two years? They changed their lettuce. It's not iceberg lettuce anymore, and it's this it's this funky lettuce that doesn't taste any good. So when you get that side salad, there was always something good about the mozzarella cheese, the onion. They they made a good side salad when you got a pasta dinner, and now it's this flaky leaf stuff it's just terrible it's not spinach but it's not good and they ask for feedback i feel like i write feedback on there <laughs> nobody listens yeah i'll just get the little cheese rondos and sometimes i get a side salad or but i know what you're talking about it's yeah good it's gotten a lot worse thank you why don't they listen so for your guys we're talking about they they have to be in contention june 1st you look at the reds first month of games and i think tom broke this down a little bit they play seven games against the Pirates, three games against the Cubs, and three games against the Athletic. That is over half their games against sub-500 bad teams. I think the Pirates and the Athletics are scheduled, or they're over-under, is like 60 wins. They're supposed to be like 100 lost teams. And then the, the Cubs are a rebuilding team. And also, if you're just looking at that schedule, there's some good teams that come to town here at Great American Ballpark. The Reds, or the Cubs come to town, obviously, in division. The Phillies come. And the Rangers come all in that first month. The Rangers obviously just got Jacob DeGrom, and they're looking to compete for a title. So a lot of good stuff that happened there at Great American Ballpark. I think people will will, will turn out if this, this Reds team competes that first month. I think we'll start seeing in May not 1,000 fans in the stands. We'll see, you know, 15, 20. Maybe I'm just— 1,500? No. If they, if they are competing, Ellie De La Cruz comes up. They have around a 500— and Ellie De La Cruz comes up, there's going to be people in those stands. This hung, this city's hungry. Okay, so then let's flip it the other way. What happens if it's uh, July 1st and the Reds are 25 games below 500? Are we even talking about them on the show? No, it's done. It's no. done. You can't be 25 games under at the near the All-Star break. can't be. There will be, there'll be 1,000 fans in the stands again. Okay. People will be saving their money for Bengals season tickets. Yeah. Which they already are. I wonder how, how much the season ticket number has dropped since they have been bad for the Reds. Since was... COVID, COVID probably took a hit, then they were competing the next year. Were they? 2021. Yeah. yeah, they were competing. Yeah, they were competing. And then last year was what it was. So the, the season ticket number has to drop because, you know, if you're a Cincinnati fan, if you can only be a season ticket holder for one team, it's pretty clear which team you you pick. Pretty clear. I mean, is just a question. It is every like home game, right? Eighty one games. Eighty one games. Wow. It's about the same price as a as a Bengals as a Bengals ticket because you get. I think I looked it up. Bleacher seats for Reds season tickets is like eight hundred dollars, which I think you can get season tickets for the Bengals around like seven hundred, six hundred, seven hundred bucks. Are the Bengals on a wait list? 
Yes, yeah. you have to put a you have to put a deposit down. But you get the, the deposit ways. back if you don't. Yes, get them, I assume. Obviously. And then it and then it gets pushed to your deposit gets pushed into whatever your tickets are. Because I looked into it, and I mean, if you put down for four tickets, you're gonna have to put down a thousand dollars right then and there, which economically can't do that right now. Don't get enough pay, paid enough here at Chatterbox Sports. But after this show, we're gonna be worth millions and billions and jillions of dollars. Now, Reed, are we are we gonna make a Bengals season ticket parlay? We've got a long time oh, to man. get it. A long time. The Who Day Parlay. We'll the talk about parlay. the Who Day Parlay on Not Too Picky around 11.30. Is Rick Broering coming in here pretty soon? Rick. Is he's he... here. Oh, he's here. Let's right get Rick for... in here. Yeah. Let's get him in. Rick Broering. So, Rick, he is publisher of the Musketeer Report, and he's NKU's radio analyst. Rick, it is so nice to see you. Face to face, and I'm not just crashing your Twitter spaces, just saying stupid stuff like I typically do. It's thank you for coming on. Uh oh, wait, wait. The sound. Wait, we hold, on, Rick. Rick. hold, hold on, on, Rick. Hold on, Rick. Can, can you hear me? There oh, we go. There, there we is. are. So, like I said, thank you for coming on, and now we finally get to see face to face, and I'm not just crashing your Twitter spaces anymore. Yeah, it's good to actually see you instead of uh, hearing you singing or uh, trolling or doing any types of number of things on the, the Twitter spaces. But we appreciate your interaction all the same. It's a, it's a fun time. Whenever I see those Twitter spaces going up, I like, I like just taking a jab at some Big East coach. But speaking of the Big East, seven games left, I believe, in play for yep. our Xavier Musketeers. They're a half game up in the standings. Three other teams are within a game. What are the odds that the the Muskies get this done in your in your approximation? Uh, well, I mean, it's going to be a fight to the finish. I don't I don't know how to exactly handicap that well, but if I were a betting man, I would say that I I don't think Xavier probably wins the, the conference in the regular season simply because of the fact that all of these teams are in a pretty similar spot right now and Xavier is dealing with the injury of Zach Fremantle. Now, they've looked very good without him through the first two games, but I'd still say if, if you're trying to be non-biased and look for uh, the, the best perspective from for a better, I would probably not go with Xavier. Yeah, you mentioned Zach Fremantle. Obviously, he went down. They played two games without him. One big name that has stepped up all season long, but his role has been even bigger is Jerome Hunter and Jerome Hunter has played fantastic what kind of spark has he been in that starting rotation and and how has he done since the Fremantle injury has happened well it, it's crazy I mean you've been on some of our Twitter spaces where we yeah. have three four five calls in a row about Jerome Hunter sometimes the fan base just can't get enough of him right now and it's pretty fun because this is a guy last year who was facing a lot of criticism and there were times where he'd catch the ball open on the three-point line and you'd hear fans audibly yelling from the Centaur Center, don't shoot. And uh, <laughs> now all of a sudden, it's completely different this year. When he's in the game, you hear a ton of cheering and uh, he's become one of the fan favorites. And the biggest thing right now that they're getting out of him is with Zach Fremantle going down, you lose a little bit of something offensively. But he is a major upgrade defensively. And Sean Miller said on his coaches show the other night, he is our best defender on our team right now. And so that's really made a big difference for Xavier. It's something that they've struggled with all season is stopping opposing teams. And Jerome Hunter has helped them a little bit with that over the last few games. Rick, Sean Miller, you, you just mentioned him. Coaches show, talk about Jerome Hunter and, and what he's done defensively. 
this is a similar roster than what Xavier had a year ago. Uh, you know, Sule Boom joined, and then Desmond Claude, the freshman, has joined the team as well. But what has Sean Miller done differently? What has he instilled in this team that wasn't there the past couple of years? Well, it's interesting because it almost sounds like um, two things that don't go together. But on one hand, he's made the team a lot more disciplined. And mostly I'm talking about offense right now. On the offensive right. end, which is where they've really seen a huge improvement, they've become one of the nation's elite offensive teams compared to the last few years they've really struggled on that end of the floor. He has made them a much more disciplined team in the sense that Everyone understands their role. They're taking good shots and good shots only. And when they have a focal point, whether it be because of their strengths as a team or an opponent's weaknesses, and they're trying to attack that weakness, they are unrelenting in it. Like getting the ball inside to Jack Nungy or Zach Freeman most of the year. When they've made that their game plan, they've done it. And they've done it consistently. And they've got it in every time. It, it's no longer optional. If you get a mismatch on a switch and there's now mm -hmm. a guard guarding Jack Nungy inside, it's not okay, try to get it into him if it's open. It's It goes in every time. We're getting the ball to Jack Nungy when there's his mismatch and we're going to score there. That's a lot of what he's brought. Now, at the same time, it's kind of funny because if you ask me about their offense, it's 80% just playing off of concepts and reads, what they call their flow offense. It's a ball screen continuity offense, and it's not a lot of set plays. He's not drawing up a lot of things to run guys off of several screens or anything like that. It's him just teaching his guys how to read and react and play within a system and play within these concepts. And they're doing a tremendous job of it. And that's a stark contrast to what they've done the last few years where they've really been a lot more set oriented on the offensive end. Sule Boom is the other the other big piece that, that has really made this Xavier team go to the next level. What does he bring these Muskies? Well, the scoring has been huge all year, obviously. He shoots the ball well from the outside, and, and he can set up his teammates. He's actually been a better distributor than they even knew he'd be coming from UTEP, where he was such a focal point of their offense and really didn't have the teammates around him to set up like he does at Xavier. That's really been a, a positive side of his game that they maybe weren't necessarily expecting. But the biggest thing to me, Reed, is Xavier the last few years has lacked that killer in end-of-game situations where it's a, a one or two possession game and, and maybe you're in front, maybe you're behind, but you need to know who are we going to give the ball to and uh, what, what are our options here? Can you make a clutch shot? Can you get us to the free throw line? Sule Boom has been unbelievable in those situations. It's not even a question now. Are, are we going to go to Colby Jones? Are we going to go to Jack mm -hmm. Nungy? Do we draw up a shot for Adam Kunkel? It's get the ball into Sule's hands, let him get downhill and make a play. And more often than not, he's probably going to get fouled and he's unbelievable at the free throw line in those clutch moments. Yeah, we're here with Rick Broyan. He's publisher of the Musketeer Report. He's also NKU's radio analyst. And before we flip over to the other big team here in town, which is UC Bearcats, I, I know you, you follow just college basketball here in the Queen City. One last question I have about the Muskies are, obviously they're going to, except for something just falling off the cliff, they're going to be probably a decently high seed here in this tournament. You hear this said all the time about how man, if you can't play defense, you're not going to win in the tournament. And that is, without a doubt, Xavier's biggest struggle is defensively. They give up a lot of points. How worried should Xavier's fans be about their inability to get that stop late in games and to play better defense? Well, you should absolutely be worried. It's a major concern, right? I mean, Xavier's not like 40th or 50th in the country defensively. They're outside the top 100 right now. So, I mean, they are really nowhere near 
most of the teams that are, are going to be getting the type of seed that they're getting, which is a protected seed top four in the NCAA tournament right now, if you look at bracketologist projections. So it is a legitimate concern. Now, the positive side, and if you're looking for hope as a Xavier fan, what you do have is an elite offense that can score with literally any team in the country. There's not one team in the nation that's just going to outscore Xavier this year. So you have that going for you. And really, to me, what it will come down to is what type of matchups do you get in the NCAA tournament? Do you get the, the type of team that just wants to score with you as a uh, not a great defensive team? If so, you like Xavier's odds pretty well. And then it, it going a little bit farther than that, do they have the, the types of things that have given Xavier the most trouble, which uh, first and foremost is a really dynamic point guard, especially in ball screen situations. They've had issues. Sule Boom's been great offensively, hasn't been so great defensively. So they've had real, a lot of issues stopping opposing teams' point guards. And I think if I'm looking for a bad matchup for Xavier, that's where I start first and mm -hmm. foremost, is a team that has a dynamic point guard who can make a lot of plays off of ball screens, and then a team that would also defend well. Rick, when you look at the NCAA tournament for Xavier, and I think one of the things that people have a lot of fun with is on Selection Sunday, you get the bracket and you start looking at how the regions pan out and everything. And obviously we have three or four weeks to go until we even get to that point. But just projecting out, and, and you just you just touched on it, which is I'm glad you said that because it's what I was going to ask. When you look at how Xavier is going to shape up for the NCAA tournament, I have always been a contender that I would rather have a good offense then I would rather have an elite offense than an elite defense because at least you can rely on your team to go out and score when you absolutely have to. But when you look at the NCAA tournament, what kind of team, and, and maybe if you could give two or three examples if they come to the top of your head, that you would look at a region and say, oh man, this region sets up well for Xavier if you know they end up with UCLA or Houston or, or one of those is, is is there a region that you feel like when you're looking at these some of these top tier teams that if Xavier's a protected seed they you could say oh it'd be nice if they ended up in the region uh, all right so you're just looking for like a, a top one or two seed basically who might yeah, be a just, good just some of these Xavier? top teams that Xavier competes with right now that if you say you know if, if Xavier's a protected seed which means they're in the top four seeds in their region what would be a good type of region for Xavier? Yeah, I mean, the, the one team that I would be looking for, and this probably isn't just a Xavier thing, this would probably go for any lower seed, is Tennessee. I'd love to have Tennessee in the same region as a lower seed just because of what we were talking about before, Paul. You'd rather have a team that's elite offensively than a team that's elite defensively, and, and Tennessee just struggles to score at times. You saw that rear its head the other night when they lost to Vandy. So um, I think... You know, this is that would be the team that I'd really point to. Would probably be Tennessee first and foremost. Um, aside from that, I don't see a lot of matchups that I necessarily love. But I don't think at the top it's as dominant as it's been in years past either. Like I don't see a, a top two or three teams where you say one of those teams are clearly the favorite to win it this year. I think that list probably extends to the top six, seven, eight, maybe even more than that of teams that legitimately have a chance. So um, I would say I don't see necessarily any great matchups for Xavier at the top, but I also don't see any that I'm like, oh, they'd have no chance if they played them. You see. Yeah, let's switch it over to the UC Bearcats. And before we get in, this is the Bearcats report brought to you by Encore Technologies. Encore Technologies provides IT solutions for a data-centered world and a suite of services from mobile computing to desktop to data center. Supporting both centralized work from computing models to improve efficiency and productivity, visit Encore Technology. The path to innovation begins right here. So, Rick, 
The UC Bearcats, they've been playing well. They obviously have some injuries. They had some injuries uh, the other night against Tulane. And the thing that is on everyone's mind is next year they transition into the Big 12. You put out a tweet last night that said that, according to Bracket Matrix, six of the 10 teams currently in the Big 12 are geared to be a four seed or better. Should Bearcat fans be excited or worried going into that big conference? Well, you should absolutely be excited because it, it's a major upgrade from the AAC and it's going to help with a lot of the things that you need help with right now at UC, which is namely more money. And they need to upgrade some facilities. They need to improve some things and money is going to solve a lot of the issues that they have. Now, the problem from a basketball perspective is what you just laid out. That basketball conference is the best in the country and it's not close. And right. it is going to be an absolute bear when you go into it next year. I mean, look at look at what you're walking into. If you're saying UC is maybe 10th out of 13, I think it's going to be 13 teams next year in the yep, Big 12. Yep, is that yep, right? Yep. I think three teams entered, if, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. If, if you're looking and saying they are going to be 10th out of that group, I'd be hard to argue with that, right? Going in, I mean, based on what we know right now. So I'm not even sure if it's like a matter of whether UC is ready or not. It's more so just the reality of where anyone would be entering that conference and coming into that pecking order. It's going to be brutal. And then you add into what UC is kind of dealing with right now, where it's back-to-back, -back, pretty disappointing seasons. I mean, you knew last year was going to be difficult. You're hoping this year would be a little bit better. And I think for the most part it has been, but you're still not getting over the hump and winning games against quality competition. You have no quad one wins. You had a great opportunity to beat Tulane at Tulane the other night. Weren't able to get that one done in a crazy overtime game. So I think there's definitely some frustration setting in on the parts of UC fans. And the, the concern starts to be, okay, if, if Wes Miller ha isn't figuring this out now and you're going to lose David Julius from this team and, and maybe a few other pieces, you go into next year – if next year is a struggle and you're at the bottom of the Big 12, well, then what's next for Wes Miller and this UC program? I think that's probably the reality that's starting to set in for a lot of UC fans as they continue to see them lose some of these close games against the better teams in the American Athletic Conference. Yeah, and you look at the going into the conference next year, who's all going in? UCF, BYU, Houston, and UC, right? Those are the four, four teams. teams yeah. Four right. teams all yeah. joining the Big 12. The easiest games on their schedule were the hardest games in the conference schedule this year. Maybe not Houston, yeah. but UCF, who UCS struggled against, and then BYU, and then these lower teams in the Big 12, they're the top teams in the American. So it's going to be all gauntlet, game in, game out, but that's a good problem for the Bearcats to have. Now let me ask you this question. Going forward for the Bearcats, what does the rest of the season look like? What is success for the rest of the season? Well, Richard Skinner and I were just talking about that on the Skinny podcast that we do. And it's like, you're in this weird spot as a UC fan because you're not making the tournament. I mean, there isn't there isn't right. any type of resume there. There's not enough left on your schedule to make the tournament, even if you made a great run. So it's really the AAC tournament or bust in terms of your NCAA tournament prospects. And aside from that, I mean, like Skinny even said, how much would a Tulane win have meant? to UC right now. I mean, it, from my perspective, I think it would signify that Wes Miller is getting this thing on the right track and this team is getting better and it'd give you a little more hope about what's to come as you move into the Big 12. But aside from that, there's not much that's real tangible to hang on to for this season. And, and when you have that, you do start to worry about how long will you be able to keep these guys focused on the task at hand and locked in to, to what you're trying to do here? Because, you know, a team like Tulane, who you just played, 
they're having one of their better seasons in recent history. So it means a lot for them to finish this season off strong. I don't know if it will for UC, and I think that's the concern you start to have as you get into these final games as a UC fan. Is it possible for them to get in the NIT? Is that is that looking like? Are they are they able to get in there? Is that even something that that excites them I at would this point? Think- I would think it's always hard for me to like, what does an NIT resume consist of, right? right I don't, I don't right. always know where that line of demarcation is. So uh, we'll have to get a little bit closer, I think, to the, the selection show before we know if they're in an NIT land. I would assume they are. Uh, and then for them, it'll be a matter of whether they want to accept that bid and go play there or not. Before I let you go, let's talk about the Norse down there. You're the radio analyst for Northern Kentucky. They're currently sitting 10 and 4. In the Horizon League, they're they're tied for second, a half or a full game behind Youngstown. They're tied with Milwaukee. Can it, can NKU win this league, win the conference tournament, and get back into the NCAA tournament? Well, yeah, that's the thing. In the Horizon League, it's always about that conference tournament. It's a one bid league. Right, it's never right. going to be more than that unless uh, Brad Stevens and Butler and all those sure, NBA sure, players sure. come back. So. Um, It really is all about playing your best basketball at the end of the year. And for three straight years prior to this one, Darren Horn and his staff have been able to get the Norse doing just that. They've hit a a stretch towards the end of the season, usually sometime in mid-January or early February, where they get on a roll, they reel off a bunch of wins in conference play, and they're playing their best basketball going into the postseason. So far, that hasn't really been the case. Now, the difference this year is they've put themselves in a better spot early. They've been tied for first or even in first by themselves for most of conference play. They just fell out this weekend after losing to Youngstown State. They're now two games behind Youngstown State uh, at 13-7 and seven, while Youngstown State's at 15-5. Uh, and five. But they are legitimately good enough to beat anybody in this conference. And I would argue when they're playing their best, they're better than anyone else in this conference. The problem for them right now is finding that consistency. They're just not playing that way enough. And it seems like against some of the better teams, especially teams with a more athletic defender on the perimeter who can match up with Marquez Warwick, NKU's leading scorer, they're just a little too over-reliant on Warwick. And that's really been a problem for them offensively in a lot of these games. Rick, thank you for, for joining on. Good luck to the to the Norse. Paul, you got anything else for Rick? Or No, I think we covered it all. Did a great job, Reed. Thanks. Thanks, Rick. This is the publisher of the Musketeer Report and NKU's radio analyst. Thanks you. Hopefully we can have you on again here in the next couple of days. Hey, thanks, guys. I love what you're doing. Love the show. And I'll uh, hang up and watch the rest of it. So thank you for having me. Let me know when you have a Twitter space again. I got some more material. <laughs> it's my stand-up, <laughs> personal stand-up. Thanks, Rick. We've had Kirby, we've had Brory, two of the best that this city yeah. has to offer. Um, you know, Uh-oh. the Muskies, where are they looking at seed-wise? Three, four? Yeah, right now they're they're listed as a three seed right now. If you go by back bracket matrix, which we've talked about a couple of times, so what bracket matrix is if you're not following college basketball day in and day out, bracket matrix is a site. It's literally just bracketmatrix.com that you can find every single bracketologist, so like a Joe Lenardi, you go in there and every single one of them is compiled into one space and then they take the average seed for each team and they build out a bracket from there. So right now, as of yesterday, they had 106 bracketologists listed uh, in their in their update from yesterday. And Xavier right now is the third three seed in there, which would mean that if you go, because the way that the NCAA tournament is seeded is you have the number one overall seed, then 
the four number one seeds are basically listed in order, like the number one through yeah. four teams yeah. in the country. So it's like a snake, the way the, the top number one seed in their region, the number one overall seed would have the worst number two seed. So basically the eighth overall team in the country. Well, Xavier right now is the third overall three seed um, in, in the tournament. They're sandwiched in between Iowa State and Virginia. I think that Xavier does end up getting a protected seed. Protected seed is a top four seed. They're given geographic preference um, to where they play. So like in the first round this year, Columbus is hosting a first round event, uh, first round of the tournament. Louisville is a regional uh, host this year, which means that if Xavier was to go to the Sweet 16, they were in the Midwest region, they'd play down at the Yum Center. To go from Columbus to Louisville to potentially be able to play in a Final Four would be huge for fan engagement as opposed to, say, having to go to Madison Square Garden or even to Las Vegas, depending on where Xavier gets sent. Um, I don't think they would get sent out west, and but you never know. You just never know. They've been sent out west before. They played Sean Miller in Arizona out west uh, at the Staples Center back in 2015. Um, I think that the Big East champion will be a three seed. Now, is that Xavier? I don't know. I think the Big East champion wins the Big East with 16 wins. Xavier right now is at 11 wins. They will be favored in five of their last seven games. Um, assuming everything plays out the way we're looking at it right now. Xavier will be favored in five of their last seven games. The two that they won't will be Providence and Marquette, both on the road. I think Providence will probably catch a loss or two here that they won't necessarily be in the running. I think that this is a three-horse race in the Big East right now with Xavier, Marquette, and Creighton. I don't think Providence is going to end up being a factor down the stretch, but they could maybe sneak in there and have a four-way tie for first. There is a scenario Rick uh, published yesterday. Um, somebody wrote an article about a potential for a four-way tie for first place. But Xavier is absolutely in the best position, not only because they're first overall right now, but because of that sweep against UConn. They've already beaten Marquette. They've already beaten Providence. They have these wins over the top teams in the Big East right now that Xavier is in the best position of the teams in the Big East. I think that Xavier or whoever the, wins the Big East will end up being a three seed. Marquette right now is is the second four seed in the tournament. So if they flip-flop, maybe Xavier drops to the four and, and Xavier gets the three seed or uh, Marquette gets the three seed. I don't see a scenario where they move up any much more only because of the teams at the top I don't see a lot of them dropping down maybe you could say that Xavier I mean obviously if Xavier was to win their last seven games right, and win the right. Big East tournament you're talking about them maybe being in the conversation for the top two, the you know the, the the top two seed in the tournament that, that'd be an incredible resume right. um but I, I, that's just not realistic right now so especially with that injury to Fremantle so. Let me let me pose this question to you, and I'll pose it to the chat here for the college basketball fans that are still watching. If you had to predict, and not knowing where all these teams are going to lay out, where they're going to be, as we're going to be right around 1130, we're going to transition over to not too picky and, and round out that final half hour of the show. So this will be the final segment of Off the Bench. If you had to predict the final four teams yeah. in the NCAA tournament, where are you going? And I would like to know. So if you put it in the chat, I'd like to hear from you guys. Paul, Yeah. when I look at the final four teams, when I look at this college basketball, there's two teams that 
automatically I think are going to be there, and that's Alabama, who are, like I said, 11-0 and in the SEC. They've won 10 of those 11 games by double digits. Then you got Purdue. Zach Eady is, as we have on the morning line here, Paul Doherty used to say, Joe Burrow is inevitable. Zach Eady's inevitable. He's going to get 25 points. He's going to get 10 rebounds. You can't do anything about that. I think Purdue's a, a pretty good pick to make that Final Four. Are there two other teams that, you know, are at that top? Um, I do think that Arizona has the talent and the ability to get there. They have uh, Ballo and Tabellus, the two big men, maybe the, the best two big men in the country in the front court that could be the best front court. I think Houston, depending on their region, um, they obviously are going to have a lot to play for because the Final Four is in Houston this year. So being able to play a Final Four basically as a home game would be yeah. Uh, incredible for Houston. They have a lot of motivation to get there, not just because they lost in the Elite Eight last year in a close one to Villanova, but because they are they would be able to play at home for a national championship, basically. It wouldn't obviously be in their home arena, but it would be right down the road from campus. Um, my final four as of today, I would probably go – I'll go with Alabama and Purdue, and then – I'll give you Arizona and then the off-the-cuff one that I think could make it that might surprise some people. I'm going to go with UConn. Wow. I'm going to say UConn out of the Big East. If they can get back to the way they were playing in the beginning of the season, they are a Final Four caliber team. The problem is that they have been so unreliable for the month of January that it gives you pause. But if UConn can play the way they did in December, right. and they played very well the other night against Marquette, which does give – now, that is a oh, – that's a terrible matchup for Marquette. Terrible matchup. That's, right. about, that's about the best pairing you could get in a conference outside of, like, Georgetown or, or DePaul. Right. Which, by the way, Georgetown is not the worst team in the Big East. You watch you – watch, uh, DePaul? Would you say DePaul is? DePaul, Yeah. And Xavier lost to DePaul. You, Georgetown is not the worst team in the Big East, and I would stand by that. Tough. They have the talent. They just can't win. Josh, they, they cover. Joshua Morgan said he likes Alabama, Kansas, Purdue, Arizona. and What are we teams, doing with Kansas? Kansas is a weird team. You know, I've admittedly have bet on Kansas quite a bit, and it seems like you have no idea what team's going to come out there. They could come out and look like the best team in the country. They truly do look like that at times. But also, they'll come out and they look terrible. Genuinely terrible. And you have no idea what you're going to Houston's another team. They've got the pedigree. Everyone loves Houston. They're so good defensively. And I know they're playing close games in the American, but it kind of seems like a, like a lion just batting at a toy, right? I mean, like, you just, they just don't even seem interested. They're like, ah, we're, we're, we're going to be a top two, top two seed here. In this tournament, regardless of what happens, unless they just start losing games left and right. Houston's not a team I'm worried about, but Houston is a team that very much could win this national championship. I think they're favored to win the yeah. national championship. The other team to look at, and this I'm going to give you a second Big East team here. I'm not sure they'd make a Final Four, but this is a team that had a ton of preseason expectations. Yeah, yeah. I know where you're going. Since Ryan Kalkbrenner has come back from his uh, – he was out with Mono, missed six games in December for Creighton. Creighton is the second best team in the country since – Calc Runner has returned since December, which is what matters when, when you have your full team together. They're the second best team in the country. Best team? Alabama. Sure. But the second best team in the country since Calc Runner has come back to BartTorvik.com 
has been Creighton. So uh, I, I do like Sir Boy Wonder. Miami. Miami's – the problem with Miami, which is why I can't pick a team out of the ACC, is because the ACC is so bad this year. I mean, they Correct. are really, really, really bad. bad. They're really down this year. And they'll get a couple teams in. They'll get – Duke will be in safely. They're not in any trouble. But we're talking about – a North Carolina team right now that was the preseason number one team. No preseason AP number one team has ever missed the tournament. North Carolina is very much in danger of missing the tournament right now. Probably still on the right side of the bubble, but oh man, they don't have a lot of leeway and you could make an argument easily for them to not be in the tournament. Uh, Duke will be in, Miami will be in, Virginia will be in. Um, I like Miami, but they're beating up on the ACC, and I don't know how much that means this year. Yeah, Miami's playing playing very well. Yeah. Brian B says two double digit teams seeds will make the Final Four. Bold, I, bold prediction. I don't think that's crazy because you could see a team like Creighton lose correct lose a game here down the stretch that they shouldn't lose, end up as a ten seed, and this again goes back to the same point I made yesterday or two days ago where Xavier was an 11 seed in 2017, but they had so many injuries and ended up losing games that they shouldn't... They should have been an 11 seed based on their resume, but they were not an 11 seed talent-wise. They just... That's how they played out on their schedule. They get to the tournament, and you're thinking, oh, okay, this is, this is more like a, a 5 seed or a 6 seed. Right. But they get in as 11 seed and, and just motor their way into the Elite Eight. They get blown out by Gonzaga, didn't make the Final Four, but... Still, I, I think that Brian makes up a great point. Um, I AJ's on your case, by the way. Virginia, AJ AJ keeps you humble, Paul. I, he is he is his whole sole mission is to keep you humble. I I do think that Virginia is better than Miami, but maybe that is because I've watched a little more of Virginia this year than I have of Miami, and they also have experience. Um, but I, I have started now in the last two weeks to watch Miami more than I did. I hadn't watched Miami really at all until the last couple of weeks. I watched that Duke game. I just don't know what I can take out of the ACC. I just don't know what the ACC means this year, and I, I can't trust. I'm not picking Virginia or Miami to go very far in the tournament, but Miami is growing on me, I'll tell you that. Miami's playing well, no doubt about it. So I think we're going to take a short break, guys. Thank you for tuning in today. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to start not too picking. We have Schmaltz coming on. We're going to be here tomorrow and Monday. Tom's in Phoenix. Trace is down in Orlando. So, unfortunately, you got me. Thank you for tuning in, guys. It was, it was fun doing this today. Ham and Eggers, as I believe that's what yeah. Tom always calls you. I don't like that. I, I think it, the I think Ham and Eggers? Do you guys like being called Ham and Eggers? I have no opinions on it. I, I've gotten accustomed to it, I guess. Gotten accustomed to it. <laughs> Guys, thank you. This has been Off the Bench, presented by United. Did a great Players job, Cubs. Reed. Clap Thanks. it up for Reed. You did a really good job, Reed. Thanks. Good job, Reed. You did a good job, Reed. We'll get together. We'll be right back with Not Too Picky.